Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today, the spiral heads takeover of Turned Out of Punk continues as my buddy, Jim Carroll, guitarist of the band, comes to the show. Also, guitarist in uh, The Hope Conspiracies, The Suicide File, A-Team, Clouds, Pure Love. There's a lot to talk about with this guy, and I am excited for you to hear it. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, hit up the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is written by my brother, who's the show producer, and normally guest booker extraordinaire, but I booked this one all by myself, and he will get the message to me. You can also find me on Twitter or Instagram at Left for Damien on those. There is a Turned Out a Punk Facebook page, TikTok page, YouTube page, Instagram page. All those are found at Turned Out a Punk on those respective platforms to support the show. Tell all your friends about it. Let them know that we do this thing. And I play in a band. You can find out more information over at fuckedup.cc. And uh, that is it. On to today's show. Today on the show, as I said off the top, Jim Carroll is here in celebration of this new Till I'm Dead Spiral Heads record, which is just dropping this week if you're listening to this as this thing is coming out. You can also check out the episode with his bandmate, Simon Doom, and record producer of this record and other records, but this record specifically, Walter Schreifel's on uh on this feed and uh yeah we are i'm very excited to talk to him as i said before someone i've known for a a long time i'm sure i met him back when he was an a-team but i really remember him around the time of clouds one of the bands he played in and anyway this is someone who as i said has played in a lot of different types of bands all within the punk hardcore world but but different sex of this thing anyway i'm not gonna ramble on anymore You'll hear it all go down in one second. Uh, check out the Spiral Eds record, and uh, that is it. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Jim Carroll on Turned Out a Punk. If you do want to get an argument, we can we can get the argument too. Let's I'm, do not, it. I'm not a punk. I was just waiting for I was just waiting for you to start recording. <laughs> yeah, so we'll go for it. Let's talk about some shit. Uh, well, Jim, let's talk about some shit. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm very excited to have you on here because 
you're someone that has existed in so many uh, different bands, different styles of bands. And I do feel like A-Team is a band that's really responsible for like the early 80s hardcore resurgence in the beginning of the 2000s and doesn't really get okay. sort of the credit or mention that they deserve. Okay. I mean, I'll take it. Sure. We'll get there, but we got to start off yeah. the way they all start off, Jim, which is how'd you get in a punk from the first time you ever came across it? I mean, I I feel like I came into it like a lot of people do. Like I was, I was, you know, when I was younger, I was like in the metal, huge into like Metallica and Anthra, you know, the big four and like through those bands sort of, you know, seeing t-shirts of like black flag and the misfits and, and just sort of starting to poke around record stores and see, you know, like, Oh, this is Metallica likes this. I'm going to, I'm going to buy this record and like asking my mom to buy me a tape uh, and like, yeah, like getting like the the first collections of the Misfits and and just going from there and then like you know naturally finding out like oh there's a and a local some sort of local scene and getting to into local shows and you know good it it was just this huge jump off point into the world. Uh, Metallica is such an important kind of on ramp band. Uh, during that sure. period by doing those misfits covers and and bringing suicidal on tour and just kind of do it doing the uh the outreach oh yeah for sure i mean like you know uh got me into killing joke which is mm -hmm. like one of my favorite bands um yeah like definitely a huge gateway band for me yeah, I think for me, it was seeing them on that septic death record where I'm like, oh, I got to buy the septic death record. Metallica plays on it. And this is the guy that does yeah. all that art. And yeah. For, oh, for sure. Yeah. Like, all the Pusshead stuff had the like easily had the coolest merch always, <laughs> always wore their own merch. And it was just like, oh, yeah, these guys, these guys rule. You know, then they inevitably went down the rabbit hole of becoming very lame. But that's just how it goes. I had to go. I, I went and listened to the new record um when it came out um uh, and i was like this is actually kind of it feels like at a certain point every band goes you know what this is what the fans want like why are we for sure yeah but it thought it's like i've also gone back and and listened to the newer stuff and it's like yeah there's you know they still can come up with some riffs but it all seems like very it seems like they lean into like let's chop this stuff together like very pro toolsy uh and yeah it doesn't feel as natural it, it also i it's it's interesting as they've kind of become like the grateful dead of this era in a way yeah and so all those songs feel like they're written in a way that you can jam them out on stage and you can kind of sure. take them different places like i was listening to it i'm like oh this is definitely probably what a, a dead kind of songwriting process was like how do we make this work with fifty thousand yeah. people rocking out <laughs> yeah i can see that for sure <laughs> so what were some of the first local bands that you kind of heard about uh i mean there was like i like sam black church and tree those boston like that era of boston bands um and like you know that sam black church was one of the big ones because they did there was this place Sir Morgan's Cove, an old club in Worcester, 
and they did an all ages matinee and like convinced my mom to like let me go to that and like you know that was insane because at that time it was like you know you see jet like jumping 10 feet in the air and like climbing on rafters and yeah that was pretty mind-blowing and then there was like a big there was like a bigger um local festival in worcester called it would at first it was called like local palooza and then it was called it was called loco bazooka um <laughs> they got the perry ferals <laughs> yeah i think they got sued by Lollapalooza. <laughs> but uh yeah that was and that was like always within like a mile of of my house so it's like get dropped off there and you just see like a bunch of local bands um but also like big headliners like i saw faith no more at one of them and uh yeah i don't know but yeah uh i'm trying to think of and also like but as far as like uh like a hardcore band that like sort of changed the trajectory it was like the first i remember the first time seeing bane as like a local band because those shows were just absolutely insane like never seen a response like that for uh for like any band because i had started seeing like i'd seen sick of it all and like you go to like i was big into the mighty mighty boston's and like that was also a huge gateway band um so seeing like those bigger hardcore shows and like sort of like hockey arenas and stuff like that but then seeing like a a local show like a band show that's like in a 200 cap room and everyone's just like jumping from everywhere and like that was a mind-blowing experience where it was just like oh shit this is this is something special yeah like i i I didn't see bane in worcester till 99 and i think it's the palladium Mm. right that was the one with the two floors like an upstairs floor. yeah that the upstairs yeah uh, and I would put that up with gauze in Tokyo in terms of a reaction to a band that just felt by the place so unique. Like I'd never seen kids were doing backflips off the stage, like it, and it was aggressive, but like the most happy, positive kind of vibe to it too. It was completely mind blowing. For sure. Yeah. It was like, I mean, still, and I feel like I, I say that, like, we'll say this to people where it's like, cause Bane has become like, so this, yeah. yeah and i'll i'll say like oh those first t- the first few times i saw bane were just like the absolutely most special insane shows because like oh this band is from here like it just it's like when it clicked where it's like this band is from here and like i'm seeing this like insane unique over the top reaction that and it, yeah it would just kind of like changed everything I think it's also interesting how Massachusetts out of uh, all, all kind of like the state's hardcore scenes, like a lot of it stayed internal, like eventually, you know, Bane and in my eyes and, you know, suicide file and like, Oh, like all this stuff kind of explodes out and becomes international. But like, unless you're from Massachusetts, I don't think you can understand the importance of Sam black church. Oh yeah. No, it's, it's a very local uh, regional Yes. Well, actually, I I have surprisingly seen, you know, there is that whole, there's a huge interest in the 90s resurgence right now. And I have seen some surprising like, oh, yeah, like people wearing like Sam Black Church shirts or putting it on like a playlist. I'm like, really? Okay. Like, I just didn't think it translated to 
you know, this it's like the white guy attempted bad brains is and <laughs> But it, but very, yeah, very unique. And it, it was, uh, I'm surprised that it, in the places that it's popped up sometimes. Well, I think it's all like people like yourselves championing them too, to the sort of yeah. young, hearing about this band, because certainly growing up at the time, uh, I hear their names, see them on flyers. Eventually I found some records, but it was also it, the coolest, lo- the coolest logo cool last logo you're right that maybe if i'd seen the logo first i would have made more of an attempt to saw it out but it just wasn't it wasn't on the radar in the way that stuff from new york was stuff from new jersey was even at that time and like there it felt like there was boston was like an island unto itself and it it goes all the way back like bullet travolta Led travolta like there's just so many bands from there that just are massively important but just didn't seem to tour as much or i don't know why it was yeah that i mean yeah, that bullet Volta stuff. Like, I I don't it. I don't think it's uh, it's gone on Spotify yet. I I think I have it on like a hard drive somewhere. But that is that band was very underappreciated for, uh, yeah, just one of the best of that era, but just non-existent currently. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, but it's also like even well, I remember going to Worcester for the first time. And this is obviously after the era that you're talking about, where Bane first shows up, but. I was shocked at how big that scene was and how many bands kind of came out of Worcester. Um, yeah. And it's not that far from, I guess like Hamilton to Toronto kind of distance, but it felt like it was as big enough to just be its own separate entity. For, it, it definitely was. Um, and also like, yeah, there, like you said, like there were so many, it was always a stopover point for bands. Like there were so many shows that I, I see flyers for shows in Boston now in the era that I was like well into going to shows and I'm like, I, like, why didn't I go to that show? And then realizing like, Oh yeah, that band played in Worcester the next day. So like, wouldn't go to the Boston show. Um, yeah. It's uh, I mean, be- very lucky that it was just like out at the, at my doorstep, like discovering once I realized like, Oh, the, espresso bar in Worcester the space that like I said Sir Morgan's Cove and all those spots like and then like all the halls and uh yeah all like surrounding towns there were like lots of VFW hall shows and there was just it was a lot going on um and you know I always champion Worcester for being you know there was there was definitely a lot going on apart from the Boston scene and uh, it seems like it still is that way. It seems like it's like still a thriving scene. Obviously, not as in touch with it as I used to be, but uh, but yeah, it's it was great. I was very lucky growing up and just kind of having all of that at my disposal. Yeah, like it felt during that sort of late '90s period, like Wilkes Bar. There's definitely some other places. I'm I'm Oakville. Uh, for to make it local and insert myself in there like it felt okay. like there were a lot of places that were outside of the quote-unquote like major city or the capital city that became kind of like the hotbeds of of hardcore and punk and i think worcester more than boston like maybe it's because lou had joined the swarm and i was such a big bane fan during that time period right that, yeah, but yeah it it did I forgot about that connection yeah strong barrett used to come up here and play yeah i think they played here three times or something back then okay Um, yeah there was a uh but it always felt like worcester was during that era 
the place that I'd want to go. I'm like, oh, yeah, Boston's cool, but, like, Worcester's where all the cool <laughs> young bands are, and it's, like, all the straight-edge kids. Yeah, yeah, it's like it's like when I say to people, like, oh, I've been to Wilkes Bar, Pennsylvania, a, quite a few times, and they're like, why? Like, why? And having to explain, like, oh, you know, it used to be a, there used to be a lot going on there, and, or, yeah. It was a cultural capital at one point. <laughs> It was. And yeah, Worcester, Worcester had that, that title for, I mean, you know, like I said, I, it still seems like there's a ton going on there. Um, mm. So, which is, which is great. So who were the terribles? Uh, the terror, <laughs> the terribles were my brother's band. Um, my brother played drums in the terribles. It was like his high school band. And uh, it was, uh, this guy, Jamie Buckmaster, played guitar and sang. And another friend of ours, Mike Leslie, uh, he played bass. And there was just like the band that, <laughs> the band that, uh, yeah, played, like practiced all the time in my mom's basement. And they were, they were great. Like, they, like, definitely, they, I mean, they kind of, they had a, a, a good following at a certain point, but like, I mean, Jamie was like such a good songwriter and he was like the high school, the guy in high school where he just like, he was just like a, the weirdo freak kid, but like super talented, super talented artist, just like wrote songs. It seemed like he was just like endlessly writing songs and they practiced all the time and they were, they were awesome. Like sort of uh, I, like early SST influence, like, Minutemen, uh, I guess some like Husker Du, infl like melodic, but like some harder songs and then just some weirdo out there psychedelic stuff. And they, yeah, great. I love that you brought that up. Well, they were around <laughs> for a long time too, right? Like way into the they 2000s. Were. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't even know, like I had moved to Boston and like, I know that they were still going, but it's like, I, and they kind of like got into the, the arty uh, scene of Boston. Um, but I just didn't, I didn't see, I didn't, I don't think I had like really seen any shows after I moved to Boston, but yeah, they were, they were a band pretty much the whole time I was in high school. And sorry, my cat's attacking something. <laughs> um, uh, and and that, yeah, into like 2002, 2003, probably. I think, no, the last record I think was released in 2017. Oh, that might, I mean, that must have been like a re-release. Re <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I'd have to, I would have to consult my brother about that, but uh, I'm not really sure. I know that they weren't playing in 2017. Just, but... just back together for the CDR. Yeah. Yeah. They had, they had like a CDR that had like, I remember it having like 30 songs on it. Like that was their output was just constant. Well, it's so funny. Cause like in, in punk and hardcore, specifically hardcore, you're like, you kind of take it for granted that if you've been a band for that long, there would be like a, a, a glut of, of vinyl releases. But the terrible seem like minus the one seven inch, like DIY the whole way. Oh through. yeah. Yeah. I think my, yeah. My brother was like drawing all the artwork and, uh, yeah, and just I like printing CDRs at my mom's house and all of that. Um, yeah, would that scene cross over at all with 
sort of, I guess, for lack of a better term, the youth crew revival scene or, or whatever that scene kind of morphed into by that point? Like, or is it um, really separate? Uh, it was, I mean, it was, it was like all of like local kids. Um, I don't know. I don't think the A-team and the Terribles ever played together. But there was this band, the Goonies, which was sort of the in-between. They were like a, like a ska punk band. Uh, and they were great. Like they, you know, they like always, they were just like local. I, I remember meeting, uh, I met the guitar player at summer school because he was wearing a, he was, I think he was wearing a Bane shirt and I was wearing a proclamation shirt. <laughs> and so it was like that, like, oh, like you're, I'm going to talk to this guy. And then that ended up being Danny Big Nuts. Um, and he played guitar in the Goonies. And then we, yeah, like, and then other people in my friend group knew like some of their friend group. And so they became this band where we would go see them all the time. And them and the Terribles would play together a lot. Uh, and like the A team was starting around that time, but we never crossed over into that scene. And definitely not like the youth crew. That was like, I think that was pretty separate. Maybe not those bands specifically, but they kind of like got into like the basement show mass art scene in Boston. And maybe they were like, I know like early on AN played some like some of those house shows. Um, but it was, it was pretty limited as far as like that crossover. It, it, when ATEEP came out, the thing that I think really set them apart to me was like, I, I love the records, obviously, but I mean, like the fact that it was, it didn't need a modifier in front of it. Like, if you were going to be a hardcore band playing fast hardcore back then, you'd have to be like, oh, we're a power violence band, or right. we're a youth crew band, or we're a, a thrash revival band, or like there was always right. like, but ATEEP was just like, and they're, a lot of bands came after, but I remember that being one of the first bands that was just like, we're a hardcore band. And that was the, they need a qualifier. Yeah. I feel like, I mean, at least when we started, like we were all still in high school and I feel like it was just before that sort of rash revival thing, like came to light, at least for uh, like me seeing it. But I remember when we started, it was like, we were trying to do a band like Murphy's Law, like that was the, that was what we were going for. Like, oh, we it definitely like a New York influence, but we, you know, John and Q and Brian coming from this sort of ska side of things, like they were all in a, in a reggae and ska band together. So there was that element of like goofiness and like, you know, on the demo, John writing songs about Bald Bull from Mike Tyson's Punch-Out, like... It, like there was definitely a goofiness. Uh, so I think it was sort of going for that Murphy's Law sound, like a little bit more fun. And then over time, just it got a little bit harder and a little more uh, crossover-y sound. It's like a little, you know, yes, a straight hardcore band. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's funny with the ska stuff, because like it kind of works live at any type of show. Like you're saying the ska band, the Goonies being the bridge band, but it does yes. it is this, this genre that I don't listen to a lot of it, but at the same time, like in a live show to break stuff up. And it's also like 
very much, I guess Murphy's Law is the same way, like very much concerned about putting on a fun live show. Like you don't have to be serious to do it. For sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's very much, I, at, it, it was very much a, you know, a teenage, uh, like a, it, th- them to go through that where it's like, oh yeah, we just want to have fun. So it's like, this is the type of band that we're going to do. It's just like this goofy, nerdy, our take on reggae. And it was like, yeah, very much like trying to be sort of Mighty Mighty Boston's and Bim Scala Bim, that sort of thing. And then like they also, some of them started like more traditional reggae bands like later on. And, uh, but, you know, if you're when you're like 12 or 13, you're just like hyped up on caffeine and, wanting to play ska punk apparently that was it was not <laughs> you know that and that was all kind of before we started hanging out before the a-team started but like it was still it was still there um when the band was starting and boston's one of the places that kind of birthed uh i guess what would now be called ska punk but like you know ska core For back sure. then with boston's and, sure. and like yeah it, it else it's interesting too boston always seems to have so many seemingly isolated scenes from each other, but like a lot of different representations of punk at the yeah. same time, be it always skinhead stuff or, or ska stuff or, or hardcore stuff or like the artier stuff, like you were saying. Well, it's also like just, I think new England in general, cause it's like so many different regional spots, like all shoved together in close proximity. Like, you know, I remember I mean, like, talk about like a juxtaposition. Getting the A team booked on a show in New Hampshire by some friends of ours, and then this band that it was our friend Evan's band, uh, this band the Drunks, who were from like Southern New Hampshire, and then going to the show in like more Northern New Hampshire and rolling up, and there's like two massive skinheads with like white pride worldwide shirts on whoa and our and we have an asian bass player and we're just like sitting in the car like what do we do here like because yeah. our friends got us on the show and we were like what's i think boston in, in, in is in a lot of ways like toronto in that we had an incredibly militant anti-nazi thing that swept through here in the 80s where like dudes went For sure. straight up war so there were definitely moments where Nazis would show up, but it was not a- at all a regular occurrence. Like I can count on yeah. my hand how many times I saw Nazis at shows in Toronto in 20 plus years. Yeah, it, it just didn't happen in Massachusetts. Like it had gotten taken care of long before that. And I remember like starting to hang out with people from like Northern California and like the amount of times that they would talk about like oh yeah when like nazis would roll up or like friends from like pennsylvania or something like it just wasn't an occurrence at my in my era of that of massachusetts hardcore like it just didn't exist mm-hmm. which for which was great it was, but awesome. it was yeah. also it was also a, a surprise when you like roll up to like a more rural region of of new england and it's like oh this is it's still here and for some reason like they're just, you know, they want this younger hardcore band to to play. 
Yeah. But to, and not to let, and not throwing our friends under the bus. Like they didn't, they didn't know when the, like when they got us the show, they didn't know that that was going on. Like we all kind of had like a. When, when uh, Barty Strange was on the podcast, he was telling the story about joint me and these skateboard kids and then being like, we have a Gigi Allen cover band and, you know, joining the, the cover band showing up at their first show uh, and walking out there. And it's just all neo-Nazis and, and just like a whole crowd. And he's like, all these neo-Nazis after the show were coming up to him like, Hey brother, thank you for supporting our movement. And he's just like, what the fuck is this? Where, what, where was this? Where is he from? Uh, he had moved to Virginia when this happened. Oh, okay. So yeah, right. it was, and yeah. I don't, it wasn't, it wasn't Richmond. It was right. uh, another part, <laughs> I guess. Uh, right. It, it is a, uh, and and like I'm sh- I'm sure there are people have to deal with some of this shit still to this day, but it does feel oh, for sure. like it was like a weird relic even then. It felt like when you'd see it outside of one of these cities where it didn't happen as much. Yeah, it was it was such a strange. I remember it was such a strange thing to see, and I was like grateful at the t- definitely at the time. I was like, I'm glad that this like isn't a thing in all of the like local scenes that we. I I can only imagine how it is now with like you know, that sort of far right wing Trumper. I don't like, I know that I'm sure there's some like intertwined uh, scene beef that goes on. But, but and I think back then also, to it. yeah, well, I think like you said, back then you're also flying into a lot of these shows uh, kind of blind, like where you show oh, up at the show, you know, and you yeah. have no idea what the kids are like. You have no idea what the scenes like, whereas now I think you could, do a little bit more due diligence and, and find out the stuff in advance because we just have the means to do it. Oh, for sure. Yeah. This was like, I mean, I'm, I'm going to say it was like 99. Yeah. I don't like no, besides like the rev board. That <laughs> yes. was, that was it. Like, I don't know. We were probably going off of like some printed out map quest directions and uh, yeah. We, didn't we have X mullet X or is that in the, I don't know. Uh, I feel like that was post 2000. Yeah. Yeah. Just after I 2001, think. maybe that makes sense. Uh, yeah. I think 2001 was when the mullet board started. So do you guys, you're just doing road trips at this point or were you touring on just the demo? Um, we didn't tour until like 2000, 2001. So like I had just I had moved to Boston late 2000 um and we did our first tour that winter or to the winter of 2001 like when basically when so you know John and Brian and the A team and Q they were all in school in Boston so we had like a winter break or they had a winter break and we put together a tour with a close call um and yeah that was like our first our first little run and it was like we went up yeah went up to canada yeah played toronto played played with career suicide i believe that shit or maybe that was the second time we played no i think it was i think actually i think both times we might have played with career suicide yeah that that little yeah what what was that uh q bar q bar yes yeah which um that's a huge show for toronto to me, that I look yeah. at that show as being like <laughs> one of those shows where didn't feel huge at the time. No, it definitely. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't matter how many bodies were in the room; it's where the bodies went afterwards, right? So you're saying it was like it was it was like the first time the Sex Pistols played, and 
exactly. People lie about being there all the time now. But it, it, it did feel like it was like, oh, this is going to be like we're going to have like a kind of a Toronto hardcore scene. And it was interesting because A-Team was beloved by both Toronto hardcore camps at the time, which definitely did not get along with each other. So I remember that was like a, a bit that was like one of those moments. Sorry, not to cut. No, you please off. go ahead. Yeah. If, um because we played like the anthrax i am the law intro and i remember uh and like ben was moshing and it was like ah cool like this guy from this band likes our band and then like and then career suicide playing after us and we were like blown away by them and yeah it was like that was a that was great it was that was just the first taste of like going around I mean, your first tour, it's always like this sort of magical moment where you're just hanging out with with friends and doing weird shit. And, you know, you got Cooch in the van. So that's like a whole that's a whole thing. But like Close Call were like our they you know, we did a, a few tours with them uh, and it was always fun, like just, you know, playing weird basements and middle of nowhere driving overnight sleeping in the van it was it was great well it, it, it's one of those tours where like looking back on it certainly career suicide here but i'm sure you're playing with a lot of bands that maybe two or three years later would have their singles out and would be kind of like doing stuff you know i don't remember anyone anyone else? significant <laughs> <laughs> or i'm wrong <laughs> i don't know i mean yeah i don't i don't know it, i'm not i'm I'm not going to say it was like a bust of a tour, but I don't like, I don't really remember any other like significant bands that we played with. Like, I mean, there was one show where we, it was in, I want to say it was like Cincinnati or something. We played a basement show where there was no one there. And we just decided to go. We just we were like, well, we'll still play because like the people in the house were. It was an awesome like they had an awesome setup like in their basement. It was sick. So we were like, oh, we'll still play for you guys. And we just like did a swap off like one song or two songs, two songs, two songs, like just like bang bang, both bands playing, switching instruments, and then we were like, okay, see you later, and just like drove off into the night. Yeah. I think we've all had that basement show. We we did one in Tacoma, maybe, and and the people that lived in the house didn't even bother coming downstairs. <laughs> awesome, yeah. yeah. There's there's something truly humbling about having a great show and people going nuts, and then the next day playing to like literally no one and being like, "Yeah, why am I doing this?" Yeah, I know it's great. I mean, I still do it, so it's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, same. I'd be lying if I said I did it. <laughs> I'm like, I would love to get to the position where you're just guaranteed. I don't want to be big or anything, but just 400 people every night, guaranteed. No questions asked. I'm like, that's all I need. Yeah, Yeah, I know. But, you know, it keeps you on your toes, you know. You got to be, and very humble as well. Well, and like you're saying about Metallica, it it changes the way you approach what you're doing Mm -hmm. if, if there is commercial success, I found. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't know, so. Well, same here. I'm, I'm from observing <laughs> from afar, right? Uh, no, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think with anything, you know, not to say that I'm 
I'm definitely not anti-capitalist or anti-money, but it's just like when you start dumping money on some sort of art, it just kind of breaks and doesn't, I don't know, it's a, it doesn't really resonate with me where it, it, I think it's very difficult for an artist to stay connected to what they, whatever their original, even if I just don't think it, it's, it's feasible for an artist to like, you know, stay the course when money gets involved. I've, I've yet, I've yet to see it. And I think it probably changes the motivations a little bit. For sure. like if you woke up and you're like, man, today I could donate some money and send 20 kids to college, or I could write a new song. And it's right. You, you kind of have, and I'm not saying it's bad. Like I, I could be donating, you know, I could probably be sending some kid to summer camp maybe, but uh, <laughs> you know, but instead I'm making sure. podcasts. So there is that kind of like, you have to decide for sure. But at the same time, like, yeah, it must change it when you've got that much and yeah. that much writing on it, that many people depending on it. Like I, I'm jumping way ahead, but when you and Frank started that band, yeah, I've never seen uh, a pop star energy around someone. And this isn't Frank, like Frank wasn't doing anything. This was just people coming at Frank, but like for sure doing that Foo Fighters tour, even doing that tour with the arcade fire when they were kind of blowing up first, there weren't people stealing their clothes. There weren't, you know, label people and media people always trying to get to them. Like it was a lot more control. Whereas when we did that tour of the gallows, when Frank, just right. before Frank left, it yeah. was crazy. People stealing his shoes. People like, yeah. it was a, a real manic kind of thing to kind of exist in. Yeah. I mean, he, you know, he's one of those people that for, you know, he just has this personality where like people are intrigued by it. People are, you know, he does have that pop star energy. And like when we did Pure Love, it was, it was very much, even though like, you know, we had moderate success and then it kind of blew up before anything, but you know, those shows were the people that went to those shows. It was just like, we, like, we would always go to the merch booth after we played and like people would just come up and like, they, you know, they wanted to just like, see him just because he's like he is this sort of character that uh yeah people are attracted to and yeah yeah still to this day he's you know he's doing his thing was the creative process working on that record because of the fact that there was especially leaving the gallows there there's so much attention i imagine kind of external pressures put on that record did, did it change kind of the process of making it uh i'd say yes and no um like we you know we met we, like we had met uh years prior when suicide file did a uh a tour in the uk and gallus played with us and so we met briefly then and then like reconnected when he was living in brooklyn and we had just talked about you know starting a band and once we like got down to it we were both just like i don't like i don't really want to do a heavy band um so let's like fit and he was like i don't want to do that either like let's do something like a little bit more melodic and so like we started writing songs and at the beginning it was like very much just like let's write the song like oh we're stoked on it like and so there was no you know there was no pressure whatsoever at the beginning and then you know he left gallows um 
And then we started talking to labels and like once the label got involved, it like becomes a little bit more real and they didn't pressure us. Like we, we got signed to Vertigo and they were trying to be like the, they were trying to like redo Vertigo and like have a little resurgence and, and make it like we're, we're the new rock and roll label. And so they kind of like let us do our thing, which was nice. Um, Like there was only one time where I think, people from the label came and listened to listen to the re- like the pre-production stuff that we were doing so no so it wasn't really that much pressure but i think ultimately uh the sort of you know there was definitely a split like once we played our first show where it's like people saw what that the band was not gallows at all and so there were people that stuck with it and there were new people that loved it. And then there were people that's like, oh, it's not hardcore. It's not gallows. I'm going to go. And it's, you know, it sucks. I'm not into it. So there was, yeah, there, I think there was that sort of pressure on him. Like I didn't get it at all. I was like, I'm just writing songs that I want to write. But I think he kind of felt it reasonably like throughout the time that we were a band. And I think it was like it was work to like get the get it going and like get you know the the show most i'd say most of the shows we played were awesome but it's like it was hard work to just like you know it it was a building a new band and i don't know if he was necessarily ready for that and it, uh, you know i think ultimately it like wore him down a little bit so it it and i think like once again like the sam black church outside of uh massachusetts you can't really appreciate it i think unless you saw the gallows in england and kind of that mm-hmm. level of and i think maybe that i don't know maybe i don't know maybe do you think it did the distance you guys had by being in brooklyn versus like if you're trying to do the same thing in london where there was such a like feverish kind of energy around it yeah i mean I, we pretty much we only ever played one u.s show we played in brooklyn at St. Vitus, like we, we were just in England and Europe, like the whole time. So it was like, I was, we were both living there. I think that was also a thing. It was like, we were both just like going back and forth to the UK all the time. So it's like, uh, yeah, I don't know if uh, like where we were at necessarily had an effect on it, but, um, I just don't, you know, as, as it goes with a lot of things, I like following up, this like force i just don't think people understood what we were doing necessarily and you're gonna inevitably like lose some of the his like hardcore fans like some people just aren't it's not what they want it's they like they want him to be crazy and screaming and you know just wasn't and we i i feel like i was i knew that that was gonna sort of happen but you know what do you what can you do well, it's can't inter- like oh, change people's taste. No, no. Uh, and yeah. it's interesting talking to like Wade because uh, from Alexis because he stepped in afterwards. Yeah. yeah. And just him coming out there and he said like the people's reaction to it like pe- there was a lot of vitriol thrown at him because it wasn't what like people's expectations are the hardest thing to deal with when you're in a fucking band because oh for sure yeah people don't I mean want- yeah. Yeah, I mean, I feel I feel like we, you know, with American Nightmare, too, it's like we deal with that because like we still put out current music that we enjoy. And it's like people 
and people enjoy it, but there's so many diehards where it's like, well, it's not like background music. It's not like the first seven inch. And it's like, yeah, like what, what's the point of doing that over and over again? Like, I don't, I, it, it's a, just a common theme where you, you can't please anyone. So why, why yeah, try to? Yeah. Like unless you're out cold or, or maybe drop dead, you're not going to yeah. find a way to please your fan base forever by doing yeah. the same thing. Like no diss yeah. on both those bands. Both those bands are like, too oh, no. but, but also, also like out cold is like a band that they're like untouchable. They are like, everything they did was good. And, but I, we would, a team would play with them all the time. And like, it would be, there'd be like 30 people there, 20, like no one cared. And that's another one of those bands where I always see on, playlist now like oh my god this band's so good and it's like yeah like everyone's catching up now that they're like an untouchable hardcore band yeah it, and it, yeah because we played one time at oh, i can't remember the name of the record store it wasn't generations but it was near that hot dog spikes hot dog place uh i can't remember uh no so it was Rege regeneration it was, regeneration was, yes regeneration yeah. that was where we played um and uh out cold played before us and getting on stage yeah. after them felt that's a hard band to follow up because they are absolutely amazing. Just like stop on a dime, mm -hmm. start again. Like just a, was it was Mikey and and Stoffer in the band at that time? I'm trying to remember. Yeah, Mike uh, Mikey was because it would have been <laughs> 2004. Oh yeah, I guess yeah, five maybe. Yeah, but yeah. it was and like Gauze. I guess there's certain bands that just have a sound that they find and they spend the rest of their time just refining it and, and, and working within that palette. But that's really fucking hard when you're trying to be a creative person. Yeah, absolutely. And it, you know, it, I, I think it's almost like, is it, is it worse if you know that you found this? Like, I think it like to those people that find this sound, like, do they know that they're like, this is my sound. I'm just going to keep going with it. Or it's like, is it just something deep down that drives that? And, you know, you just kind of are, are you like a pure artist where it just, this is what I do and whether I know it or not. Well, it's also fascinating. Cause like, yeah, not that we're doing this for commercial re means or anything like that, or reasons as we both you and I have clearly established. Uh, <laughs> but at the same time, like you do want people to react to what you do and you do want people to for respond sure. to what you do. For sure. And, and so, like, the idea of doing, like, a whole career where you might be opening for some shitty hipster hardcore band or you might be playing to 30 people, like, <laughs> but to still believe in what you're doing, like, even if no one fucking gets it, what oh, you're yeah. doing is amazing. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think, I mean, at least personally, I feel like that's that was, like, my training at the beginning of, like, starting to play shows and, like, it you know there were so many a team shows where like no one either no one was there or like no one really gave a shit and you know that's sort of ingrained in you it's like you play the show because you want to play the show and you play it like you would any other time like yeah sure people's the crowd's energy informs your performance and like but you still have to just give it a hundred percent and and that it and that was ingrained early on and i still feel like i do that like i'll you know there's the handful of spiral head shows that we've played you like 
some have been smaller, some have been bigger. And it's like, you just, you play them the same way. I think that's what also separates punk in a lot of ways. Not that there's aren't underground scenes in every scene, but right. I, I interviewed uh, Craig Bell from Rock from the Tombs and, and the Mirrors okay. and stuff, right? Like, so arguably one of the first, first punk kids. Yeah. And, and I feel like that's the birth of wanting to do this style of music because you fucking love it and not because you don't care if anyone else gets it. You're going to do it because you get it. Right. I mean, especially at that time, like you're just a, you're just a fucking weirdo and like you're doing something relatively new, like obviously informed from whatever garage, noisy garage rock. And, but like you're doing something and you're just like probably playing at like bars for normal people (laughs) and just like confusing everyone and like maybe getting beaten up after it's like that is i'm in i'm in awe of like that early uh whatever proto-punk or early punk where it just you know we you know growing up like playing this type music it's like yeah you always like you get in fights with like high school jocks and or but not as much as like those those people did because it was you know it's still it it was a slightly more normal just to play in a band yeah like i think there's the big one of the big divides is that post nirvana pre nirvana period like if you're a kid who got sure. post nirvana it wasn't but all that being said it wasn't like everyone in my fucking high school like punk it was still like no. very few of oh, us no. i got Absolutely thrown into, not. i got thrown into a party one time for playing a cramp cd um it, there's there's definitely some repercussions but you're right it's not like bunch of jocks yelling hey devo at you before pelting you with fucking rocks yeah. because you're into this kind of music <laughs> no i was like I, in high school i was just the rocker kid yeah. like yeah. oh you're a rocker cool yeah. yeah like that was that was it yeah no people at my high school didn't didn't get it they, they there was i went to like catholic school and it was very straight laced normal people for the most part so yeah and that, and that, I always say this is like a religion too. Like in the same way that we have this adherence to this, it doesn't matter if other people are telling you it's, it's wrong. You believe in it, and here you and I are years later still adherence to this belief. Like it's it's more than just like a, a high school phase. This is like a life. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I remember, you know, in high school, talk like you'd come in on a Monday, and people would be like. Oh yeah, I went to so and so's party, and people be like, "What did what did you do?" And it's like, oh, "I went to New York to uh, CBGBs and saw saw a band play." And they were like, "What?" It's like people just couldn't wrap their head around it. Or like, "Yeah, I played a show." Like, what What do you mean you played a show? Like, where did everyone was just intrigued? Like, did I was, you play covers. I was definitely... well, did yeah, you play, did you play? Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, oh yeah, we played a Gangrene cover. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah it is um but that, i think that's the thing that also makes it special is is uh, i think josh from fucked up said it when he was on the show that it's this is the real red pill like the red pills that they oh, yeah. peddle to you is that's bullshit this was the the real red pill because all of a sudden you didn't want to go to those fucking parties you didn't care yeah. about getting oh, no. invited you didn't care who you sat and ate lunch with because none of that shit all that shit's fucking fake and bullshit yeah it was like all of, you know, pretty much all of my friends went to other schools. And so it was like the weekends were 
my time of like this or like, you know, week nights when there were shows, it was like, that was, and I knew it. I was just like, I, I know I had a good idea of who I was. And it's like, it's not this, not this person, like these people, like I'm, I, yeah, it was, I knew what direction I wanted to go in and yeah, for, for better or for worse, still, still going. We'd probably been all better off you and me if we had gotten into crypto. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> I know. God. That would have been a way better investment than ah. Rev, Rev Records <laughs> on color vinyl. Ah, I know. I'm just looking at looking at my records right now. Kind of. I don't know. I could still. I'll get a. I got a. I got a hot tip. So we'll get in on the ground floor of the next one. Oh yeah. All right, no, let me know. Really. Let me know. Okay, if if it's yeah. ebullition singles from the '90s, I'm way ahead of you. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a new ebullition coin. Yes. Um, it's it's awesome. I'll I'll send you the link. <laughs> I'm glad crypto crashed and burned before it got to the point that we had to worry about the ebullition currency. And, and like... <laughs> well, you know, there's there's always an upturn. There there could That's be a, there could be something else. So we'll see. We could we could one day have Discord dollars. In our crypto wallets. <laughs> I can't wait. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. There's no way hardcore kids wouldn't buy a physical coin with a picture of Ian Mackay on one side oh, of the sheep on yeah. the other. Absolutely not. Oh, sick. Actually, <laughs> there you go. We should do this, right. actually. Now did, I'm we, about it. did we just start a cryptocurrency? Heads or tails. It's like a heads or tail coin. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to oh, yeah. make... We're going to make billions off this shit. We're going to be Ian Mackay rich by the time this is over. God, I'm so excited. Has he been on the show before? No, he'll never come on. He doesn't want to do it? I don't think so. I think he uh, I think he thinks I'm a little critical at times. Um, and, I, and I'm yeah. not like, I, you know, I'm just, a, I just love the impact that he had. And I love discussing it and breaking it down and, and stuff. But uh, I, I went to the house one time and. Right. Uh, my friend Chris O'Toole and I punished him for five hours in the house, just like, <laughs> and it was awesome. And it was probably the greatest, <laughs> greatest unrecorded punishment session I've ever had. But, uh, oh, God, so was, now, but now he's just like, no, I'm good. I put I, in my I, time. Yeah. Like, I don't know. For, I shouldn't say he hasn't like formally said I'm not doing your show, but Discord was like, you got to write him a letter. So I wrote this like, Heartfelty kind of letter left on red, like a, physic, like a physical <laughs> no, letter. No, no, an email. Maybe I'll next. That'll be my next he, step. He only communicates through like analog, yeah, uh, communication. I won't even open your fucking email, man. You gotta send me. <laughs> you gotta send me this shit. Uh, but it's it, it's interesting how uh, like these people do become deified in a way, yeah. and that. That, and it, it has very little relationship to the person ultimately it's more just like us picking a, a particular age of this person's life and and building that into some sort of uh god type figure for us like we we when people worship ian mckay as, as hardcore kids there's you know like you're saying with an like there's people that are like seven inch only background music only i think with with ian mckay it's the same way there's some people that are like fugazi era ian and stuff but as hardcore kids we're worshiping a kid who's like 18 years old, 19 yeah. years old. Yeah. And uh, sorry, cats falling nope. on my keyboard. I love the cameo. Oh, look at that. Ralph. What's Hi, up, Ralph? Ralph? Yeah. Don't wreck it, Ralph. It <laughs> um, yeah. It is, it is weird how you do feel this connection to these people. And yeah. 
and I guess on a, a mainstream popular level, that's definitely what was happening with Frank too, but it happens in punk all the time. Like, yeah, for sure. Ian McKay, Kathleen Hanna, Wes, like there's just people that have been built into icons for people that they're, you know, at the same time, they, they, you, you can't live up to someone's fucking icon. Like you're, you're a human being. And so this yeah. person's always going to feel let down or have like a weird, unhealthy relationship to do this. And I'm saying this is someone with a weird, unhealthy relationship with Ian McKay. Right. Okay. He but I'm sure, I mean, I mean, do you get it as well as like a front man to, cause I feel like it happens a lot with front people where it's like, you're writing these lyrics and that's like the most resonate. It resonates with people because it's like, you know, it's not like I, no one comes up to me and like, Oh, this guitar line changed my life. And it's like, it just doesn't happen. It's like, you know, words are this tangible. I, I really, I think I, I think anytime someone meets me, by the time they leave, I've just totally deflated their Careful. fandom. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> you gotta be Jandic. You gotta leave that mystery out there for people. But yes. you see yes. me warts and all. Like <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So you you just like deflate your own your oh. you're like, I'm gonna put a stop to this right now. Yes. You I'm will a- not hold me in any sort of you will not raise me up. No, no, I am a, <laughs> I am, I am a, uh, uh, my own legend killer. <laughs> that is my I love goal. it. <laughs> like, yeah. Good. Like, That's your, your next, next band name, your epic metal band, legend yes. killer. Uh, there, there is though, like you do see that, like you're saying, like people coming up to, and it doesn't have to be a band that's blowing up and that's gone you know, supernova in their popularity. Like you see it with Martin from Crudos and people like right. that expectation oh, yeah. that he was going to give those speeches every single night. Yeah. Uh, uh, he talked about when he was on the show. He's like, that was, that was a lot of fucking pressure. And that was really fucking hard to have to go out there and try and say something impactful and profound every single night and get emotional and dig that shit up. And he's like, well, Lippers yeah. is a lot more fun. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds, I mean, it sounds exhausting. Like, and you know, I can only imagine. Yeah. And, and there's not that, uh, it's not like you get to go get on the private jet afterwards and just completely unplug. <laughs> you want to sleep in some weird punk house basement or something. Yeah. Or driving into the overnight in yeah. a van with seven other people. Or a murder motel where you're like, there's, that's definitely <laughs> blood. That's 100% blood. I think something moved in on my pillow. I'm not sure. I'll deal with the head lice tomorrow. So uh, A-Team and um, Suicide File overlap, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. There were, I mean, there were some, uh, yeah, we played, two, I, I did some double duty shows and like one of, I want to say it was, I guess it was the last A-Team tour was uh, at the end of the last or one no so there was a suicide file tour with an and then that ended in california or suicide file ended it in california i went on to meet up with uh the a team in like nashville and then that like the an tour uh the a team played that show in nashville and then we went on into wherever like up to canada or 
somewhere. <laughs> it, <laughs> it's interesting because like the suicide file, it it it's definitely a very different Sonic, but it feels like mm. it's a very different fan base. Like there's crossover with the kids that like both bands, myself, but yeah, and, and lots of kids, but there was also like they were different sex within DIY hardcore. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think in Boston, there was a lot of like, there was still like a lot of, you know, every band would just sort of play together because that was just the scene, whether or not people would like it or, or not. But I, I feel like, you know, suicide file and a team could play. I mean, I feel like there was a, a mass art show that was like a team suicide file and i don't know maybe i'm getting i don't know but yeah there were plenty of shows that were just like all of those bands would play together and there was no people would get everyone would get a good reaction um but yeah i don't i don't know if there was i i, I guess i don't really see it as that much different but yeah like it, it's not that much different ultimately but i think it's like um like a uh, an old school hardcore versus modern hardcore yeah. approach, right? Yeah, I could see that. I mean, both like informed from the same place, but mm-hmm. like, yeah, I, I I guess it was like Suicide File was sort of taking, like, injecting something something a little bit new into that old school hardcore realm. Yeah, um, it's, like, it's like that kind of like there's a almost I find, and I'm. You tell me if I'm completely talking my ass on this, but there's like a a post drive like Jehu, post uh, Helmet, post like a lot of these bands that once again are hardcore bands, punk bands come out of punk and hardcore, but we're doing something a little bit different and sort of this sort of like slightly different approach. Like it's interesting looking back on it now and seeing, like you're saying, there's in the grand scheme of things no difference between these two worlds, but there was yeah at the time it felt like. Um, kind of a new sound emerging right yeah i mean i guess i'm thinking about like i remember when the suicide file demo came out and this was before i was in the band and it was like oh this is this is these guys trying to do like sort of that old like old school la punk vibe like old school southern california vibe that you know uh and then i guess with the lp it sort of it went a little bit more rock that that direction so yeah it was yeah i guess i've never really thought about it <laughs> well, it's, it's, it well, and i think that's interesting that you when you said that there too because there's like um it, it there is sort of that return to punk as opposed to like mm-hmm. hardcore had become this is hardcore and like it, it all yeah. mixes together but but like we're a fast hardcore band we're informed by these hardcore bands whereas in the more modern way you could be you could bring tons of other influences in there and it wasn't considered yeah. like a sin yeah, for sure. I mean, that was, and I think that's why that band sort of resonated with me when they came out. Cause it was like, there was a little bit more melody and, um, but still like hard and fast. Uh, so it was, yeah, it was good. It was, it was definitely something, something different uh, at the time. How many times did you guys go to Europe? Yeah. How many times did uh, Suicide, File. Suicide File? Only once. And this was like after, uh, after we were, it was like a reunion thing that we did in 2006. Like we had, I think we had played, yeah, we stopped being a band 2003. And then I think 2006, 
we, I don't know if we had done, I can't remember. So basically like I was going to Europe, uh, playing bass for panic, the panic and guns up. We're doing a European tour one summer. And I had the, the bright idea of like, Oh, why doesn't like suicide file tack on a reunion tour? Cause like we had been asked about it over the years. So we ended up like booking this, this, uh, I, basically I was trying to extend my European summer vacation. <laughs> so like, so tacked on a suicide file tour at the end of it. Um, yeah. And it was like, I think it was like two, another two weeks. Um, but yeah, just the one, we just went the one time. It's while the impact that suicide file has, um, in, in terms of like, there's just a, a lot of bands that I think are influenced by them. And and once again, you guys were, you know, on on bigger hardcore labels, but it wasn't like you signed to, you know, Victory or 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 something like that, where there was that sort of like outreach where these records were everywhere. It was like a very organic kind of thing that spread. Yeah, for sure. And it was like all done. It it was done in like that very old school way, where like, you know, Indecision put out our record because Dave Mandel and Dave Weinberg were good friends and it's like oh yeah we're you know it's just it was all very organic and i don't know if it was just because we were all sort of around for so long where it just like it reached out to all different branches of of the uh scene mm-hmm. um but yeah it's still surprising like how it, like we played those those bane reunion shows over last summer and the it was some of the biggest most insane shows that we've ever played so it was yeah it's it's funny to still have it uh have any sort of impact which you know it's nice yep and dave Dave mandel (laughs) uh ufc superstar photographer i know it's crazy it's yeah i hadn't said oh yeah i mean he's yeah he's crushing it and we got to uh we did they did an indecision uh 30 year fest over the summer and suicide file played that as well and it was that was the first time i had seen mandel in like probably over a decade and like he was yeah he's crushing it he was just saw him do a uh a backflip um during unbroken that was that was great just you know <laughs> that's awesome for, forever forever young i haven't i don't think i've seen him since 2001 when uh the swarm adamantium tour happened and i was their roadie Um, hell yeah the swarm were very mean to me but everyone in adamantium was very nice so i I definitely (laughs) oh yeah nicest southern california guys yeah yeah not like those Um, jerks from worcester (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah dave mandel still looks exactly the same like it hasn't aged at all so yeah, but if you see him, if you see him again, you'll definitely recognize him. Well, it's funny. My friend was like, who's not into punk or hardcore, but it's a UFC guy. Was do you know Dave Mandel? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and he's like, oh, check this out. And it's like, you know, all those photographs and stuff, which is, yeah, I don't know. It's it's awesome that the, you when years later you see people's names popping up in these different places, and you're like, oh yeah, we're all still weirdly connected by this cult we're a part of. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it all comes back. It was like, yeah, especially playing that fest, it was like seeing people that I hadn't seen since early 2000, like that that Orange County scene where it was just, yeah, it was, it, it was very, very fun reconnecting with people. 
Yeah, like I have no interest in ever going to a high school reunion. But if any, no. if like any of these bands reunite and I'm near it, I'm those are the reunions I want to go to because that that is I my. Mean, yeah, I mean, especially those those band shows that that was like high school reunion for for me. I was seeing so many people where it was I hadn't seen them in so long, and it was just like you know spending a couple days in Boston back to back and yeah, it, like I something I rarely do these days, but just, yeah, getting to see people that I hadn't seen. It was, it was nice, you know, to a, to a certain extent, sometimes you gotta (laughs) hide yourself away, but, uh, but yeah, pick and choose. Yeah. You need that cloak of invisibility that uh, they have in Lord of the Rings. Yes, for sure. Sneaking in and out sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, one person I'm never sneaking away from or hiding from is uh, Joe lifeline. Big Joe. Oh yeah. Yeah, greatest people. Yeah, sweetest individual. Uh, just always smiling, yeah. always having a good time. Uh, yeah, I love Joe. And like, it's such a pure love of this thing too. Like, he was a guy who never felt bogged down by, you know, the little sect of this thing that he was a part of. You know, no. he, he liked yeah, all I'm, different types of bands. Yeah, I mean, those. It, it was like that early connection. Like when we uh me and the other a-team guys lived in a house together in boston uh thrashford a legendary Um, infamous house (laughs) legendary um but though like those chicago guys like him and mark hearse like they would come and stay with us just like i don't even know i guess it was like off of the rev board or the mullet board or Mm -hmm. like i don't even know where the connection came from but like they would just come and stay with us. Like I just, it was such a normal thing where you just have someone that you're like loosely connected to like, yeah, just, you know, come hang for the weekend. And like, we'd have a party and there would, you know, there would be a show that those guys were coming to. And yeah, it's such a strange, a strange thing that doesn't happen anywhere else. We invented social media in punk like punk, like we didn't yeah. invent the internet but like punk and hardcore was people that definitely invented like going back to the letters and and oh yeah classified sections and mmr and stuff people like but we were like yeah like early days of message boards i had friends all over the place that i had never met yeah for sure i mean you know gibby from the trouble and panic doing makeout club like that was yeah, that was a big thing. Even though it was like I, I was never on it. I was, I wasn't in the the makeout club scene. But you know, friends I know that it was like definitely a a connector where, you know, you just find people to hang out with just because you were loosely a- associated with this one little little scene. Yeah, it was definitely like I was never on it. I, I don't photograph well. Um, but uh, <laughs> but it was it felt like it was somewhere where people were meeting people. It was certainly a dating app in some ways. Like for sure. When Panda came to Toronto on that, I think it was the first, yeah, it was first seven inch. Uh, Gibby and Damien went and stayed with someone they knew from makeout club. And the other guy stayed at our house. And I was, it was, it, was a very, <laughs> it felt like a very, uh, at the time it was like, what the hell is this thing? Obviously it's just an extension of message board culture, but now looking at right. the world we live in, it was like, oh my god, we were, we were doing that first. Yeah, on the ground floor for sure. Yeah, and the idea of having 
friends all over the place and the only thing that connects you is shared interests is just not yeah. a normal human thing no no not at all we like yeah 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 for sure it's not like uh you know that sort of water cooler office talk where you know talking about your what your kids did this weekend or what you know talking about tv shows that you saw last week like it's you know it's something that in i think it's a more tangible uh resonating thing where you know i feel it's a deeper connection that you have to these random people all over the world which you know it's uh, i'm very appreciative of it yeah because we chose these friends they weren't forced on us by where we were making our living well, some were forced on some. Some would definitely right. That's, <laughs> that's that invisibility cloak coming back and exactly. for us to get away. From. Uh, but yeah, I mean the the fact that as I'm sure you know, as I'm sure you do too, it's like you have some of the same friends that you in high school or earlier, where it's like you still see these people all the time, and you have these very strong bonds. And yeah, it's it, and it doesn't exist in a lot of places like outside of that this music scene which because you kind of like you know not not to say that you like went to battle together but it's like you had all of these collective experiences and lots of memories so it's it's a strong very strong bond it's also weird how there's like an international language where you if you say certain artists certain labels certain magazines it immediately evokes the same picture for everybody. Like you say, Gigi Allen, yeah. everyone immediately knows who who's part of this thing, who you're talking about. Yeah. Or, or when you talk about Ian McKay, they, there's an image that's kind of like different for people, but it's, it's certainly somewhat universal in how it's kind of taken up. And it's, and it, that's something that happened almost completely organically. It's not in a book or anything. No. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. No, you're, I love the cameos. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're just you're making me lose track <laughs> you know well, I, was, I, I was just saying how it's like it's a shared cultural experience and language and and things that we kind of happens completely organically oh for sure i mean and you know it goes back to like i was thinking the other day about how i mean it it gets a little diluted now but like how you would just see people dressed a certain way like if you saw someone with a flight jacket with some pins on it like it's like oh this is a person that I probably have some shared interests with. Yeah. And, and that would just be like that. That's like how you would make friends. Like, Oh, you would, you would see someone, like I said, when I met Danny big nuts from the, from the Goonies, like he had a Bane shirt on or something. So it's like, Oh, I'm going to go talk to this kid. Like, I don't know who he is, but you know, we're going to obviously be able to have some sort of conversation and find some common ground. I mean, I don't know. It, it's funny. Cause I feel like, with a younger generation now that it's like now that like that sort of like skinhead culture has become like a fashion statement it, it like now i see kids with like or people with flight jackets on and like kind of dress vaguely skinhead but wouldn't necessarily know who like the partisans are you know <laughs> i i feel like so it's like so now i don't know it's like and like even and also like that sort of like punk look like sometimes it could just be not connected to any sort of music it's purely fashion 
but it makes it mo- that much more special for like the people that I, I do think you need to, I love like seeing reading about like people gatekeeping. It's like, yeah, you gotta, you gotta do it to a certain extent. You got like welcome in new people that want to learn, but you got to kind of protect it from the people that are just culture vultures. It also feels like music doesn't have the same sort of cultural identity attached to it now that it did in the era where you had to pay for it. You had to like search it out in a different, and that's not to say that people aren't punks now and people aren't hardcore kids. Oh no. But, but you yeah, did... I'm going to, can... no, no, you, you, you oh yeah. No, but yeah, there's, but at the same time, there's this sort of drive to, or there's not that drive to kind of identify yourself by dressing a certain way, which means you listen to a certain type of music, which means, cause you can, you don't have to make those kind of choices in the same way anymore. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, you know, there's good and bad to like, I love that there is this sort of new era of like punk and hardcore where like everything is kind of acceptable. Like nothing's off the table, like hearing people do like shit with like nineties, like, drum and bass break beats and, and <laughs> like I love stuff like that it's like that's just being creative and that's like getting weird and or like any sort of melody and like a little poppier side to things like it, if it's done well and done from a place where it you know an honest place like it you know any I I love that nothing's off the table like I I always was attracted to those sort of bands that like just kind of did the weird like one of my favorite bands uh from massachusetts uh of like that late 90s scene was get high Mm -hmm. and like they were just you know they would play these bigger shows but like never really got their due because they they were just doing this sort of like little post-punk little you know but then early 80s hardcore like this like mishmash of and i I just always like those those weirder bands and I think now it's like that's kind of become the norm to like throw in these little twists and turns that and I'm I'm here for it for sure but like it has to be coming from a place of uh you know legitimacy and honesty you brought up get high there I think dives another band that is oh not, god yeah do not appreciate it outside of that area well, that was just, you know, it was, I, I, and Dive was a band, like the tail end of, of like, right when I was sort of getting into, I never got to see them. Um, but yeah, they were just like this mythological, like, oh yeah, this local band, them and Hatchet Face was like, oh, that's like, and like Fit for Abuse, it was like, that had all sort of just ended. Um, and yeah it was like like i remember the first time getting my hands on like someone made me a copy of uh the dive record and i was just like holy shit i can't believe i missed this band by like month like months um yeah but also it was just a time where like people weren't it, it wasn't like a if you were in a local band it wasn't like touring like they weren't i think they probably they might have played new york a couple times or maybe gone down to new jersey but like you know, they weren't touring. They were just like playing these local shows. Uh, so yeah, never really got out outside of Massachusetts, unfortunately. Yeah. And it's also, 
with get high and and dive and sam black church and a lot of these bands there's there's a uh it's it's like a unique approach to this thing that's that's not in line with like the mosh metal stuff or the power violence stuff or like the, all these other kind of 90s very defined little movements that were happening in in hardcore like in in boston there's like a a weirder edge to everything in throughout for the sure 80s and 90s. It's, oh well, it's like it's like that uh that little you know towny massachusetts weirdo like suburb very suburban because like even you know even bands from boston most of the people aren't from boston like there's a handful of people that i can think of where it's like oh you're bostonians and you're involved in punk and hardcore like everyone i know that was like in the boston scene usually moved there at a certain point and myself included and but it's like it was yeah that sort of I don't know. It, it's like this weird suburban boredom. Uh, I I always think of like uh, Adam and Steve from Caven and like those like those guys. They always talk about like the this like uh, suburban towny metalhead. Like that's you know that's just what we were, and then we like slowly got into all this other stuff and just and and it. It, but it all informed like what it became. But it's like I, I honestly think it's like comes mostly out of being bored in the suburbs, and you know just finding friends that you can play music with, and like you're just gonna throw in any sort of weird jokes and uh, it, yeah, whatever keeps you entertained, and it could ultimately become something that's uh, influential to other people in a strange way. Well, and it's also interesting because in the mid eighties and, and into the nineties and throughout the nineties, there's like a, it's not like it's not relevant, but it's not necessarily connected to the hardcore scene. But then by the late nineties with Converge, Dropkick Murphys, like the, uh, uh, cave in and, 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 and certainly like, you know, the, the, in my eyes and, and that whole kind of world too, it was like the, uh, the zeitgeist of, of of hardcore by the late nineties. Yeah, for sure. And it's like, and it's strange that like all of those bands that you just listed, that they're even connected, like, cause if it's someone that would, you know, that knows the dropkick Murphys now, like the fact that they have this like very straight line connection to like converge and it's just, you know, it, it, it but all of those, all of those things were just, together in in one spot just because it was like that it was a smaller scene and everyone would play together and like i'm trying like there's always a flyer of at this place st john's gym and in clinton which is just outside of worcester and there was like i remember going to the show where it was like neurosis today is the day converge like it was just like if, which you know those bands would just be all like festival headliners now but <laughs> yeah. that was just like they you know not that they're, they're not that they're that different they are all pretty similar but like that shit just like happened normally where it was just like yeah well b because this is a place to play we'll have whatever like it would be like you know piebald playing with converge and bands that, or like six going on seven playing with overcast and 
all these like very there would be like bands that were very different but all informed from like the same place but it, there was like a common bond that would uh tie everything together i think that was just me rambling but well no you're, you're <laughs> right because it, it makes sense in boston that all these bands would play together but like anywhere else it would be like no these are completely different scene yeah for sure um yeah i mean look at you know like i said like looking back if if someone didn't didn't know what was going on at the time be like why are these bands playing together like what what it doesn't make any sense but at the time it it you wouldn't even bat an eye it would just kind of be like yeah this is just a a show like what i guess it's like i mean everything was sort of like oh yeah i'm going to a show not necessarily a straight hardcore show there would be like some emo bands and some indie rock or like weird electronic stuff and yeah it was a little bit of everything which was which was great well even as like a fan buying the records like i'm like okay big wheel recreation they put out like a tenured fight and the fast break split like this is a hardcore yeah. label and then buying some of the stuff and being like what the fuck is this <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah i mean they, that uh what was it they they came from massachusetts comp where yeah, it was like yeah all of the big wheel stuff where it was like you know cast iron hike doing a gg allen cover and <laughs> and then it was like six going on seven and what else was on i mean yeah, I think Bane. Get high, I think's on it, right? Get high was on there. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that was a weird. That was a weird label where they. It was kind of. It was fully like a local scene, like Rama, just put it like, oh yeah, I like your band. I'm gonna put out your record, and it's cool. Like it, yeah, it all, a lot. Most of those bands, uh, if not just the people in the band, went on to do a lot of bigger stuff and it was that was a that was a big one getting that comp where it's like oh it's all different this is a little bit of everything like it's so cool what our what our scene is uh, it was funny i was in uh la a couple years ago hanging with my friend abdullah and we're like smoking weed at this build building called like it's like a weed marketing building and right. uh, we're smoking a blunt in an office and i'm talking to the guy that runs the company and uh, we're and he's like, oh, what do you do? And I'm like, oh, I was singing a band. He's like, oh, I used to, I used to run a punk label back in the day. I'm like, what label? He's like, Big Wheel. Oh no! I'm like your label's <laughs> fucking crazy. That's the weirdest label. You just ran into Ramamayo, yeah, randomly. Weed oh, brings us all together. All the ex straight edge kids find themselves smoking bloods together at some point. Okay, all right. I don't know if he was straight edge ever, but he definitely isn't. I don't any think anymore. so. No. no, no. I'm pretty sure him and him and Dickie Cummings were not the straight edge guys. Well, I, I definitely have now joined them. I've, I've found, we found unity together. Love it. Yeah. Bring, yeah. Like you said, brings us all together. Uh, <laughs> I, I guess we've talked for a long time and Jim, anytime you want to come back on this show, you're I'd more love than welcome. To. Yeah. Uh, there's so much, so much we haven't covered, you know? No. And but before <laughs> you go, we got to cover one more thing. Which all right. Is, let's do it. How did you meet Simon do? Oh yeah. That's, I mean, that's easy. Uh, we met at guitar camp in uh in boston so we were both going to this berkeley summer program and uh it was you know like i said before about like seeing someone that i think he had like a nausea shirt on and was like carrying around a like a little mini cd boom box and i was like oh yeah this is like a kid that I want to talk to. And I think I had like a camo locust shirt on. Like, I think I was just wearing that all summer. 
and yeah we we both sort of like you know picked each other out in the crowd and uh yeah we ended up like hanging for that whole summer just because we were like the two like the two like punk hardcore kids going to that program because it was so filled with like you know shredder dorks and you know a- actual uh serious musicians and we were just sort of the goofy uh punk kids um but yeah it was you know hung out for a whole summer and then got disconnected because we weren't there was no social media and then reconnected like 15 years later in in brooklyn randomly at a bar and uh yeah rest is history did you know right away that it was him did you guys immediately make that connection with me uh so we were we were at i think it was like an after sort of an after party for like some mutual friends show and i was talking to someone had i guess i had my back to him and like someone had said my name and then i just heard like jim carroll and i turned around and i was like simon and it was yeah it was like immediately like holy shit i haven't seen you in so long and like gay like big hug and we sort of like re yeah just reconnected and like you know went over whatever we had been uh you know missing for the last 15 years and at at the time so that was when i was doing pure love and we were and a few months later when pure love played our that show in brooklyn uh simon played bass for us oh i know um, yeah so that was like a random thing um and then a few months after that is when simon doom he he started Simon Doom and we we were playing together. So and then yeah, from there, Spiral Heads and yeah, so it's just been a mu- musical love affair this this whole time. Well, this has been fun the whole time, buddy, because you got <laughs> a lot of different places you pop up throughout this culture and, and uh make cool records every time. So thanks for coming yeah, on, man. Thank you. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was a it was a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you, Jim, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Jim will be back for a part two at some point in the near future. Uh, so check out Till I'm Dead. And uh, and that is that. Check out the Hope Conspiracy record, too. That's fantastic that they put out last year as well. Check out all the things Jim does. Dig into the Jim's back catalog. Check out all these fantastic bands and, and go on a journey. Speaking of going on a journey... We're going to be going on a journey probably tomorrow when I put out this next episode because tomorrow on the show from the band Pitbull, the legendary Mikey Pitbull will be on the show. And this is a good one. Uh, If you're not familiar with Pitbull, they are a foundational kind of Detroit capital H hardcore band, not from that negative approach era, but like, uh, the sound that I think many of us today associate with Detroit, that to me starts really with Pitbull and oh boy, this is a good one. Uh, but you'll hear that uh, probably tomorrow because it's all in uh, in lead up to the screening of Dope Hookers and Pavement, the Detroit hardcore documentary happening here in Toronto. You probably heard an ad for it at the top of the show, but it's going to be going down uh, this Sunday. If you're listening to this thing, when it comes out at the great Innis town hall, I love going to see movies there. 
a lot of good memories of seeing different things there over the years. And so come on out. But before that, check out this episode with uh, Mikey Pitbull. You will not be disappointed. All right. That is it for today's show. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter, the lives and issues faced by Indigenous peoples all over the world matter. We need to protect trans kids and help trans people protect themselves and their rights and stop hate and violence towards people of different faiths, different races, um, because we're not talking about different nationalities, different sexualities, different identities. Because we're not talking about politics here. This is just basic human rights stuff. Ceasefires are just basic human rights stuff. So if there's organizations that are doing and affecting positive change in this world, get involved. You donate your time, donate your money, uh, because I'm sure they could use that if you have money to spare and you'll feel better. Not that you're doing it for yourself, but it, it it's like a, a, a good side effect. Speaking of doing things, get out there, start a band, start a fanzine, start a record label, start a podcast. Just just make your own culture. Punk gets better when you contribute to it. And it's designed for you to contribute to it. That's what it's, it's all here for. Put on a show. Open a show space. Now we're getting a little bit grandiose. To bring it back to reality, uh, sign your organ donor cards because by the time they come looking for those organs, you don't need them. And I've seen miracles happen because people have signed those cards. So you can affect positive change. You're dead, so you, you really won't be able to reap those benefits. But not that you're doing it because you want to reap the benefits. That's the wrong reason to do it. But you, you, you'll be doing something great. That's some good things to kind of go to your death knowing. Ah, fuck. Gave someone else a new lease on life, hopefully. All this heavy shit, try meditating. It really does help you process this stuff. And uh, I'm definitely not the first person to say that meditation works. Uh, but I can tell you that I might be the least likely to have said that. No, probably not. But anyway, try meditating. All right, that's it for me. Thank you for listening. See you on the next episode. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.